Amen. What a blessing. Thank you, sister. Appreciate that. Would you take your Bible? Let's get after it. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, it's always a joy as a pastor to see folks using their gifts for Jesus. And uh, I say this um, uh, a lot uh, to our, our staff. Um, and I don't, I don't know that I've said it much to our church family, but I, I say it to our staff all the time, your gifts belong to the church. And uh, that's true. My gifts belong to this church. And uh, Miss Esther's gift belongs to this church. And so do your gifts. And uh, those gifts belong to Jesus and they belong to the service of the church. And uh, so use what God has gifted you in uh, to serve him uh, in accordance. So this chapter is so, so rich. There's so much going on in it. And uh, I genuinely, I'm a little bit giddy. I know this chapter's always been this rich, um, but for me, for what, whatever reason or another, God seems to have just illuminated for me um, this chapter in a way that I've not seen it before. And, and uh, obviously, having read through the Bible uh, dozens of times, and most of you probably the same, uh, you've read this chapter. I've read this chapter. I've, I've preached out of this chapter. You'll notice at the very end of the chapter, verse 58, we'll get to it. Um, that was our entire theme. I think it was last year. And uh, always abounding in the work of the Lord as much as you know that your labor is not in vain. And uh, there are some powerful, I would say maybe uh, capstone or foundation verses. Those verses that just, you could preach a whole series on them uh, or a whole calendar year on them and uh, by themselves. But we're going to find them in their context. And that again is the reason I'm going after it tonight. That's the reason we're going to try to eat the whole elephant. And I hope that doesn't discourage you. I hope the word of God excites you. Uh, we are not going to be a marathon. And listen, I gave you seven minutes back in Sunday school already, okay? So I'm going to get the seven minutes back. Um, but uh, I, I never go long. My intention is not to go long for long's sake. But there, we are on the cusp, I think, of understanding a powerful chapter uh, after the last two weeks of groundwork. And that's not just groundwork to say that, you know, well, that, that kind of matters, it kind of doesn't, but now we're getting to the good stuff. It all is good stuff, uh, as I observe it. The first part we looked at two weeks ago, verses 1 through 11, what the gospel is. Uh, we heard about the, uh, uh, the, the death, burial, resurrection, as it is written, um, how it works, the receiving. Paul says, I received, and I gave, and because I gave, you received. How the gospel, how the blueprint of the the Great Commission uh, works. We also saw Paul giving us those proofs of the resurrection that out of, as a man uh, in due time, he said, I saw Jesus with my own eyes. And then this morning, uh, if you didn't get a chance to listen to the message, please go back and listen to it. I'm not saying it's something special uh, other than the text is something special. It's just, it's a powerful look uh, at the dethroning of, of death, if you will. And Paul, as we said this morning, gives this awful hypothetical. And, and would you agree with me? It's a pretty awful hypothetical. It's very uncomfortable to look at. That our faith would be in vain. That those who have died are still dead and never going to rise. Um, that we're yet in our sins. It's this really awful hypothetical. Very hard to look at. At. But I think that it's important because it gives us kind of the other side of the uh, the resurrection. Um, I, I, if you've seen the movie, I haven't seen it. I don't think I've seen the original one, uh, but A Christmas Carol. And I don't understand the full premise of it, but I think the premise of The Christmas Carol is that this guy kind of looks at what life would be like if he wasn't there. And uh, that's kind of what Paul took us on in this particular chapter. Like, hey, this is what life and eternity looks like if Jesus hadn't risen, if death still held uh, dominion over all of us. And so... It is a beautiful but uncomfortable view of the importance of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, but what I love about this chapter is that there's still so much to cover. Um, let me say this about um, the epistles. Um, there is logic and thought flow in all of the letters that are written uh, in the Bible. And uh, Paul is addressing a real thing. We, we saw this morning he was addressing that kind of annihilist mindset that, hey, death is it. And when you die, you're dead. You're dead and there's nothing left. And he's still going to continue on through that thought flow. And so I want to 
encourage you as you read the Bible and as we preach the Bible, uh, it is a preacher's responsibility to say, hey, thus saith the Lord. Here's what God actually was saying. Not here's what I want it to say or here's what I think is a cool thought about the text, but to preach what God's word actually says. And so tonight we have um, a, a little bit of a different style, more like a Sunday school, verse by verse, kind of going through it. And uh, we're going to walk through the thought flow of the Apostle Paul. And uh, he's already established what the gospel is. He's already established in the first part, uh, rather the second part of this particular chapter. He has established how the resurrection uh, provides hope and authority to, uh, hope to us and authority to Jesus. But what he actually spends the bulk of his time on in this gigantic chapter uh, is talking about the ramifications of the resurrection on your life and mine. That because Jesus holds soul authority, that because Jesus is uh, the one who conquered death, what does that mean for your mortal body and for my mortal body? And so there is a logic here. There is a thought flow here. Don't check out. Um, if uh, if you, you've done this, I've done this, I've talked about it recently even, um, when you're reading through the text, if you blank out for four or five verses and then just pick up, that's like... Some, uh, I don't want to get the men in trouble. Sometimes we do that when our spouse is talking, and then we have to play catch up on the back end of it. I'm really not even trying to be condescending women. We do it. You probably do it too. Um, but then you're like, oh, man, what were the details that I totally missed? I'm trying to fit. Don't do that to the text tonight, okay? There is a logic. There is a thought flow. you got to stay with it. Sometimes we can approach the book of Proverbs a little bit different, right? The book of Proverbs has kind of um, a little, I don't want to say disjointed in a bad way, but it's kind of sectioned off thoughts and Proverbs that are kind of all put in one chapter. But in the epistles, there is a logic. There is a thought flow. There was something the Apostle Paul is writing to this church saying, here's the issue. I want to address it with you. And here are the offshoots of that issue. And here are the solutions to that issue. And so as it pertains to the resurrection, like I said, there's not another chapter that has more detailed information. In fact, later on in the chapter, he's going to say, hey, I'm revealing you a mystery. Something that wasn't otherwise known, but in this moment, in this writing, I'm telling you, here's how it works. And uh, so there's a lot there. There's some beauty, some power. Uh, There's a couple of verses that are a little bit uh, more difficult to interpret, and we'll walk through them together. And uh, my hope is we, we are creating a body of believers who are, one, biblically literate, so you know how to do this with me, and two, you enjoy this process of studying through the text. And uh, it's not going to be a spoon-fed sermon. We're going to work on it. We're going uh, to try to chew off all the meat from the bones and try to get all the nourishment from the text, but that does require you paying attention. That does require you not looking at your clock. That does require a personal decision to engage in the process. And uh, with all that being said, let's dive into our text and let's see what Paul has to say for us because it's just like talking to the Apostle Paul. This is him speaking to us in our world today. And I know that some of it's contextually relevant to them, but it's also uh, applicably relevant to you and I today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 25, we'll just kind of start back one or two verses and get a running start. It says, for he must reign until he hath put all enemies under his feet. And verse 26 is where we ended this morning. The last enemy shall be destroyed, or that shall be destroyed is death. And now I want to be careful how I say this, um, but this is a promise that is and isn't fully fulfilled. Now, uh, with that in mind, go to Hebrews chapter 2, and I'll give you some clarity from the text. Keep your finger in in 1 Corinthians 15 or a ribbon or whatever. But I want to be careful how, how I say this. Death still has some dominion over God's people, okay? Um, and like I said, I'm trying to be careful. You have to weigh that against the, the biblical reality of John 10, 28. You're going to Hebrews 2. But in John 10, 28, Jesus said, and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. And so listen, when I got saved and uh, when the, the resurrection took the throne uh, over death, I was freed and I will never perish. But the fact of the matter is I, we live in a world where bones still break. 
We live in a world where the grave does still have some dominion. And you're going to see that uh, uh, clarified for us in Hebrews chapter number 2, verse number 8. It says, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. It's the exact same line of thinking. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not all things put under him. Here's what the writer is saying there. This similar idea is that, hey, he did conquer the grave and he did conquer a dominion over. He has authority over the grave, but we live in a world that isn't fully put under his feet, but he will. And the Bible says in, back in 1 Corinthians, go there, where he says he must reign until he has put all things under his feet. And so it's this constant process, but to those who are his, he's given us eternal life and we're never going to perish. And sure, our bodies might taste death, but only for a season. And this whole chapter is going to deal with what happens after we taste death as we're buried in the ground. So go back to verse number 27. And uh, verse 27 is not hard to interpret, but there's a lot of pronouns. And it's kind of like a game of ping pong. It's going back between he and he. Uh, but he is the father and he is the son. And I'll try to clarify for you as we read which one is which. Verse number 27. For he, the father, hath put all things under his, Jesus, feet. When he, the father, saith, all things are put under him, Jesus, it is manifest which means to be clearly seen that he, the Father, is accepted. Uh, now, not, not accepted with an A. Accepted means like, hey, you're approved. Uh, accepted means that he is exempted from this. So here, let's just read the rest of it. It says, and he is accepted, which did put all things under him. So here's what that verse is saying. It's very clearly seen. It's manifest that when God puts all things under the feet of Jesus, everything is under the feet of Jesus except for the Father. Okay, uh, all things Jesus rules over except uh, the Father, and really, that, that the focus isn't so much on the fact that God's not under Him, but that means that literally every single shred of every single other thing is placed under Him. The only thing accepted is the Father, and so in the final days, Jesus rules over every single aspect of creation as He's going to deliver it back to the Father in the coming verses. Look at verse twenty-eight, and when all things shall be subdued, notice that future tense unto Him. Then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him, the Father, that put all things under him. That was the Father. That God may be, and look at this last phrase, all in all. In this final act of submission of the Son to the Father as it relates to creation, Jesus is going to secure and subdue all things entirely. And then he is going to give it back to the Father. And their verse is coming to clarify that. But here's the beauty. He says that when this happens... The Father gets to be all in all again, just as it was in creation. That the Father permeates the world again once more. Uh, that he would be among us and he would be our God and we would be his people. As those promises in Genesis and in Revelation uh, uh, give us. And so the Father, uh, what the Father once had, we know that sin had destroyed. But one day the Son has come, obviously, and redeemed it. But he will secure it and subdue it all. And then purify and offer it back to his Father as a gift. What a beautiful picture uh, this text is giving. Now. <laughs> verse 29 is the strangest verse in the whole chapter, okay? And uh, so let's lean into it. I'll give you some definition as we go after it. He says, Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? Now, every Mormon in here was like, Yeah, amen, we get baptized for dead people. No, no, no. You have to understand what the issue is at hand. The issue is at hand, uh, the issue at hand, rather, in, in Corinth is Paul saying, Hey, you, we preach to you the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and, and you believe believe that resurrection but then you say there is no resurrection for us there is 
no resurrection from the dead. And so that's the whole issue of the text is Paul is assaulting this illogical idea that if there is no resurrection, then Christ couldn't have risen. But you believe in the resurrection, but you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And if there's no resurrection, then, then, then and he's going back and forth. And here's what he's doing. He says, you guys are way off. He says, if you, don't, if you don't believe there's a resurrection coming, then Christ himself didn't conquer the grave. And your faith is vain and your preaching's vain. And your apostles are false teachers and you're yet in your sins. And those who have died are dead in Christ. And he says, and then you're over here baptizing people for dead people. Why would you do that if there is no resurrection? So listen, here's the key phrase to understanding uh, verse number 29. He is calling out their inconsistencies. He is not condoning their actions. He's saying, you're over here baptizing people for the dead, but you don't even believe in a bodily resurrection. You don't see the problem here? You don't see the inconsistencies here? And again, nowhere else in any other shred of scripture do you find anything that harmonizes with being baptized for dead people. Paul is calling them out for being inconsistent. He isn't saying, well, you should be doing that, but you must believe in the resurrection. He's saying, you don't even believe in the resurrection, but you're being baptized for dead people who are annihilated and exist no longer. So he's calling out their foolishness, uh, as it were. Now, Paul is going to take a turn here. Follow the logic. Paul's coming after them saying, hey, you guys are wrong. You're not doing this right. There is a resurrection, and if there wasn't, we'd all be without hope and without God. Now he's going to turn it to himself and use himself as a personal example and follow the, th- the, uh, the flow of thought. Verse number 30 says, why stand we in jeopardy every hour? What he's saying is if there is no resurrection, why do I hazard my life every single hour for the sake of the Great Commission? Because why am I going across the globe to preach and why am I suffering shipwreck night and the day and the deep? Why am I going through these things if there is no life after this? And you'll see in the same text, he's going to say, we might as well just eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. He says, why hazard we our lives? Verse number uh, 31. He says, I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die daily. Now that also is, is, is not as hard to interpret as verse 29, but it's not super easily uh, understood. But understand this. He's saying, hey, I'm protesting your rejoicing and, the, and the, the, the dying daily life that I live. And he said, if there was no resurrection, then why am I dying daily? You're over here living it up, but I'm over here suffering for the cause of Christ. Keep reading in verse number 32. If after the manner of men, so in this, this life, we're of all men most miserable, if we're just going to live and die in this place, if after the manner of men, notice what he says, this is, this is obscure, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantages, advantages if, that's a hard word to say, it me if the dead rise not. He says, I'm, 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 uh, uh, I'm, what's the word that he used? Let me look back there in uh, verse number 31. I protest by your rejoicing. He says, I, I, I live a life that is, that is constantly hazarded. I die daily in my Christian walk. I'm hazarding myself crossing the globe to preach a gospel. If people are going to die and not go anywhere, why would we do that? And then he adds this, like, this other thing on his resume. We don't, I've, I've never used this on the resume of Paul, but he says right here in uh, verse number 32, if after the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. So evidently, uh, and there's kind of two ways to look at it. He could be speaking hypothetically. There's no real reason in the text to believe that he is. It seems like he's speaking factually, that at some point in Ephesus, he's using a location and an event. He says he fought with wild beasts at Ephesus. Now, understand this. In the, the, the Colosseums, or as they would be called in their day, the circus, there, they, there are Colosseums all over the nation of Israel and all over the Roman world. We saw four of them while we were in just the sliver of Israel. They were all over the place. And they would take Christians and some 
sometimes they'd throw them in unarmed and naked, and they'd just be consumed by beasts. Other times, history records, they'd give them a weapon, and if they could fight and win, they'd win their freedom. Now, I don't know, but Paul seems to say that that happened to him. And I'm certainly not going to call the Apostle Paul a liar, though that's not something I often add to Paul's resume here. But he's saying, listen, if, if in this fight with wild animals, and if this dying daily, and if this hazarding of my life, and you're rejoicing, but I'm suffering, he says, if there's no resurrection, then why am I doing this? Keep reading verse 32. What advantageth it me if the dead rise not? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. He says, this is it. Let's be Epicureans. Epicureans were the people in the Bible day. They still exist today, where they're just trying to try some new thing, and they're trying to have some some, uh, delight and some enjoyment and some pleasure and eat and drink and just make merry, because this is all we get. And the Apostle Paul says, if this is all we get, why am I doing all this stuff? Why am I going out and preaching and hazarding my life and fighting against beasts and dying daily? And why am I going through this if this is all we get? If this is all we get, go out and drink. Go out and eat. Go out and make merry. Go out and live your life because the pleasures of this life is all you're ever going to get. What a miserable Christianity that would be. Keep reading verse number 34. I love it. He, He says, verse 33, he says, Be not deceived. It's almost as, Paul, as though Paul can't stomach this line of thinking any longer. He says, be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. He says, don't even allow that thought to stay in your mind. Don't be thinking, well, yeah, you know, we don't know what's coming tomorrow. We don't know if there's a resurrection. No, he says, get that out of your mind. It's going to corrupt the way you're living. Verse 34, awake to righteousness. Wake up. Stop thinking we're going we're to be buried in the ground and not come back. Awake to righteousness and sin not. He says, for some have not the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. He says, there are those around you who don't understand this truth, but you do. And what a shame that you'd live in such a way. What a shame that you would uh, uh, live in an an airward way of thinking that, hey, let's just eat and drink and party and do what we want because tomorrow we're going to die. Keep reading verse number 35. But some man will say, "How?" I love this. Some man will say, uh, how are the dead raised up and with what body... Do they come? And I love Paul's logic. Paul's a lawyer, right? I mean, he's used to arguing and and going back and forth, and he kind of attacks this mindset ahead of the gate, and he quips back this logic. He says, well, some of you are going to say, well, if the body goes into the ground and there's some resurrection, what body are they going to resurrect with? Well, I'm glad you asked. The Apostle Paul is going to come and show us exactly what body we're going to rise with. Verse 36, thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, Except it die. This is really important. And here he's shifting gears again. He's going to spend, I think, the majority of the rest of the text on this particular idea. But he says, when you put a, a seed in the ground, you expect that seed has to die. And I don't mean to get all like horticulture or, or lawn care on you, but seeds do have to dry out, and then they have to they have to be wet to be germinated. And he's saying that before a seed can grow any plant, it absolutely has to die. You understand that already. And that's what he's going to paint the picture off of that idea as he goes forward. Look at verse number uh, 37. That which thou sowest, so think of a seed. Thou sowest not that, the, uh, not that body that shall be, but bare grain. It may chance of wheat or some other grain. Here's what he said. When you're planting a, a, a wheat field or you're planting a garden, you don't plant. Now, in our day, we can go to Home Depot and get like a half-grown tomato plant, right? We can plant that in the ground. That is not what Paul, it's the opposite. Paul's saying you're taking a little tiny seed and you're burying it in the ground. You're not burying the, the actual substance of what will be, but you're burying the substance of what will come. It will come from what is. 
And we understand that logic. And he says, listen, you're going to bury something unbeautiful and uncomely and unimpressive. You know, this giant oak tree that comes from this little, uh, uh, this little acorn, this little seed that goes in the ground. It's not beautiful. It's not massive. It's not impressive. It's weak. But it's going to produce something beautiful and powerful. And that's exactly where he's going. It's merely a shell, if you will, of what's to grow. Something's growing out of that shell. Look at verse 38. But God giveth it a body. We're talking about seeds right now. That's the analogy that he's on. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him and to every seed his own body. I love that. Here's what Paul just said. He said, when you look at a seed, when you, when you bury that in the ground, what you're looking at, you couldn't possibly imagine what beauty and power and, and volume can come out of such a tiny little seed. Now, again, I'm getting ahead of Paul, but he's talking about our physical bodies. And when you look at someone's physical body, you're looking at a shell. You're looking at something that's going to be sown in weakness but raised in power. That's this chapter. You're going to be looking at something that's not impressive, something that's corruptible, something that's broken or breaking, or something that's completely broke and buried in the ground, but something beautiful comes out of something so unimpressive. He's talking about our glorified bodies. Stay with him, if you will. Look at verse 39. All flesh is not the same flesh. But there is one kind of flesh of men, and another flesh of beasts, and another flesh of fish, and another of birds. So I'll just use two of those examples. You have the, the flesh of maybe, well, let's, let's go with flesh of, of beasts. You have a steak, and you have fish. They're both flesh, but they're not the same. They're different, okay? They're, 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 they're similar. They're of the same substance, but they're, they manifest in different ways. Now, keep going. He's going to illustrate further along that idea. In verse 40, he's going to use planetary bodies to illustrate the same idea. He says there are also celestial bodies, and that's planets and stars in the sky up there in the heavens, and, then, and bodies terrestrial, the, that which is upon earth. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. So what he's saying is, you in your own mind, you don't understand the glory, the glorified body part yet, is what he's saying. You don't, you don't get that. I'm about to reveal that mystery to you. But you do understand there is flesh, but there's different types. You do understand a seed that goes in the ground and doesn't look anything remarkable, but something beautiful comes out of it. You do understand when you look in the stars that, hey, that's a giant circle in the sky, and we live on this giant circle, and there's some similarities, they're of the same substance, maybe the same elements, but there's some difference is where he's going with all this. Verse 41 says, There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for one star differeth from another star in glory. He says they're similar, but they're different. And that's important. Because when we get to the part about the glorified body, the one Jesus rose from the grave with, the one we will inherit, the one he'll raise up, like from the, the, the dead seed in the ground, he'll raise up. It's similar, but it's, it's different. Okay? So look at verse number 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. He said, when you look at the stars in the sky, there's differing glory. There's some similar substance, but they're also different in nature. And the flesh of man and the flesh of birds and the flesh of fish, they're similar, but they're different. So also is the resurrection of the dead. He said, what is buried is similar to what God raises in substance, but it's, it's different. In the same way that you buried a seed and did the seed come up, yes, but it's, it's more. It's different. It's glorified. Uh, keep reading in verse number 42. It, talking about our body. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. 
So a corruptible body as a seed or a shell goes into the ground uh, with a certain amount of limited glory. We look out today and there, you, you possess a certain amount of glory. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Uh, we are image bearers of our creator. And so there is some resemblance of his glory still intact in us, though much of it is broken. And that's going to be sown into the ground in corruption, but it's going to be raised in incorruption. Verse number 43. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. Now, I would try to be very careful and, and sensitive. When, when, a, when a body goes into the ground, it doesn't go in an honorable state. Now, I know morticians get paid a good amount of money to try to make it look, you know, dignified or glorified. But the fact of the matter is, we all know that body is going into the ground, and it's not a glorified, it's not an honorable state. But it's sown in dishonor, meaning sown, put into the ground in dishonor, and it is raised in glory. Keep reading in verse 43. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in in power. This unspecial, unremarkable seed buried in the ground brings out a massive oak tree from its substance, but it's better. It's glorified. And the same is with our, so it is with the resurrection. Verse 44. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised in a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Now, please don't get offline with this. Jehovah Witnesses will use this verse to say, look, Jesus didn't physically rise. He rose in a spirit body. No, no, no. In the same respects that you look at the earth and say, well, there's a, there's a, a, a celestial body. Or rather, there's a, a, the, the earth is a terrestrial body. And you look at them and you see the moon and you say, well, that's, 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 that's a rock. That's similar. But it's different. He says the glories differ. Yes, there's a physical body, but there's also a body that has become so spiritual in terms of glorification that they differ one from another. Verse 45. Uh, and so it is written, the first Adam was made a living soul, and the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Adam was that life that started, but it died and required a second Adam to be a quickening or a realiving or a reviving uh, spirit, and that was Jesus. Verse number 46. How be it that was not first, which is spiritual. Adam wasn't the spiritual body, but that which is natural. And afterward, that which is spiritual. So Adam wasn't the end of all of us. He was the beginning of all of us. He was natural. His sin was natural. But Jesus, he is where we're all going. He is the oak tree from the seed you and I. We get to look at seeds right now. We didn't get to see Jesus in his resurrected, glorified state. But that's where our body is going. That is the second, that afterwards, that's spiritual. Verse number 47. The first man is of earth, earthly. Uh, and second, the second man is the Lord from heaven. I love that, uh, that, it, that, it, that it doesn't just say that, well, he's the second man is from heaven. It says it's the second man is the Lord from heaven. It's not just, well, he's, he's spirit because he's from heaven. No, he's not just from heaven. He's the God of heaven. He's the one who came from heaven. Verse number 48. As is the earthly, such are they also that are earthy. And as uh, the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. Now, this is bigger than you might think. Um, I want to read that verse again. I want you to try to explain it to me if you had to, and then I'm going to try to explain it to you. Verse number 48. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy, and as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. He says, earthly people, speaking in an earthly manner, they're after the earth. They're broken. They're corruptible. They're mortal. They're fragile. And those that are after Adam are that. They're, they're earthly, they're mortal, they're fragile, they're breakable, they're under the reign of death. This whole chapter is about that. He says, but those who are of Jesus are become of the, the same material of the heavenly. 
Look at it again. Now you know. Let's look at verse eight again or forty-eight again. As is the earthy, such are also, or such are they also that are earthy. So if you're of the earth, then hey, you're just like that. As is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. So Jesus, this spiritual resurrection or this physical resurrection in that spirit body, in that physical glorified body, that's heavenly. And he's the Lord from heaven. And Adam is this first body that's it's earthly and it's, it's, uh, uh, it's corruptible. And he says, listen, if you're of him, then yeah, that's the body you got, this earthly corruptible body. But if you're his, you're of that same substance. Keep reading. Verse 49. And as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Praise God for that. That, that is the Imago Dei, the image bearer, the, the fact we were created in the image of God. That's the garden. And he says, hey, you're going back to that. You're going back to being the image bearer of your creator. You're not going to bear the image of Adam much longer. That weak and corruptible body like a seed is going to be sown into the ground. But it's going to rise in the image of Jesus and in the image of the heavenly. Verse number 50. I told you we were moving along. He says, now this I say. So he's about to switch top, switch gears, but the same topic. He says, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Neither doth corruption inherit corruption. Here's what he said. Your physical body cannot inherit heaven. It has to go into the ground or it has to be changed, which is the mystery he's about to show us. But here's what he just said. This broken body has to be sown into the ground or it has to be changed. But let's stick on that idea. It has to be sown into the ground because this corruption cannot inherit in, in corruption as it stays the same. You can't just like, you know, like, oh, I was just, I was transported into heaven or, you know, I had a dream I was in heaven. No, this body has to be changed in order to remain and be in heaven. So keep reading uh, into this very, very familiar passage that we know a lot of. But now we know the context. Verse 51. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. Now that word mystery I talked a little bit about, Paul was given different mysteries. One of the mysteries is the mystery of the Gentiles, the idea that Paul, Paul had this revelation and this understanding that the Gentiles were always supposed to be included. Now I look at the Old Testament and I think, well, you guys should have known that all along. But again, I wasn't a Jew, and so I wasn't you know, seeing through that glass darkly, but I give him a, a little bit of a break. But Paul understood certain things and then revealed them by writing and text of the Scripture to those. And here he's about to do the same thing. I'm about to show you a mystery. He says... We shall not all sleep. We're not all going to die, but we are all going to be changed. And Paul is taking these curtains of what was otherwise not known yet, and he's throwing them open wide for us, and he's telling every one of us, not every person's going to die. Now, again, work through your mind and your, your, your understanding of the Old Testament and find a place where it says that. This is not something I think anybody would have understood up until this point where Paul's saying, hey, no, no, let me show you the mystery. Every living human being will stand before God in a glorified state, but it might not be by death. And so he's going to open up this understanding. Verse number 52. He says, in a moment, here's the mystery revealed, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trump shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. So he says, when this is all over, when the kingdom is given to the Father, when this whole thing is kind of coming to its uh, eschatological end, it's all, all being handed to the Father. He says that Trump is going to sound, and I love that what he said, the dead will rise incorruptible. That body that is sown in dishonor and corruption, as it breaks that ground, is glorified. Incorruptible. And then it says, and we, I love that Paul just assumed he'd be there for this day, he says, we shall be changed. 
And we know from other passages in 2 Thessalonians and other passages that, hey, the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord? And our change will happen. They go first, and as soon as that happens, man, that trump sounds, their bodies are changed and reunited with their souls in heaven, and they are put back into that glorified state, and we'll meet King Jesus in the air. But we must all be changed. Look at verse 53. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. And this mortal must put on immortality. This seed either has to be planted or it has to be radically changed by the, uh, the return of Jesus Christ. There, there must be a change that happens. Verse 54. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, whether by death and burial and resurrection or by Jesus' return, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. This glorification of the saints, whether by, uh, whether by resurrection or by rapture, uh, will be the full fruition uh, of the, this, this glorification. We'll be changed into the image of Jesus. Just like Jesus walked out of the tomb in a glorified body, and that day in our resurrection, we'll come out of the grave or go up by rapture uh, in fully glorified bodies. Listen, then and only then will death no longer have dominion in its entirety. We, it will be completely put under his feet. Decay will have no hold on any, any, any saint's body. Uh, there will be no power in the grave any longer. So let's keep reading. We're almost to the end. These are some really famous verses, but now we know their context. Verse 55. O death, so it will be brought to pass the same. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The, the graves break open. The land and the sea give up their dead. Every single fiber of a saved person's body is reunited to stand before Jesus and death gives up uh, its victory. Rather, the grave gives up its victory and death gives up its sting. Uh, Would you go, in that line of thinking, jump to Genesis chapter number 3, verse number 15. As Jesus triumphs over every enemy, the last enemy he puts under his feet is is the grave. And in this moment, this is the moment referred to in verse 28, where he's delivering the kingdom to the Father. Verse 56, I'll, I'll read this to you as you're turning to Genesis 3. It says, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. That word, that phrase sting or that word sting literally means venom, like a, like a bee's sting. The, the venom of sin or of death is sin. And this is the fulfillment of the prophecy given in Genesis chapter 3. He says, I will put enmity between thee and the, uh, and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, God speaking to Satan, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And it's this beautiful picture of Satan giving all of the sting of death and all of the venom of death into the heel of Jesus as Jesus on the cross absorbed our punishment, absorbed the venom and the sting of death in that he received it, but then in doing so he crushed the head of the serpent. He broke the victory of the grave. He broke the authority of the grave. And so in bruising his heel, Satan bruising the heel of Jesus, Jesus crushed his head in the same process. Verse 57, back in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, if you would. We've only got two more verses left. I love this verse. It's such a good verse out of context. But, man, in context it means so much more, doesn't it? He says, but thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, people use that verse, you know, at the end of a race or at the end of this or that. But its context is, hey, we're going to be buried or we're going to be changed. But most of us, if the Lord tarries us, well, all of us, if the Lord tarries us, is coming. We'll be buried in the ground, corruptible, dishonorable, buried, in this gra- buried in, on this earth. But we, are, we aren't earthly any longer. We are of the heavenly substance. 
And we raised with him. And praise be to God. Thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That sting is gone. The grave's victory is overthrown. Verse 58. Again, it was our theme, I think, last year or the year before. It says, therefore. Now, never have we understood what therefore meant better in this verse than now. Therefore means, hey, because of what I've already told you. Well, what has he already told us? Well, he told us the mystery revealed that we'll not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. He told us the facts of the resurrection that Jesus did indeed, and he was seen. That he was buried, and that his saints will someday be buried. And that the power of the grave has been overthrown, and the authority of Jesus is established, and the sting of death is gone, and the head of Satan is crushed, and the kingdoms will be subdued, and purified, and given back to the Father. And because of all of that, therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's the whole heartbeat of this chapter. Hey, I know you think the death is the end. I know you think that there is no reward. There is nothing coming. You're going to be sown into the ground and nothing's going to come of it. But he says, no, no, no. He says this idea is your labor is not in vain. Everything you've done in this life, whether it was fighting beasts in Ephesus, whether it was dying daily, uh, whether it was, you know, foregoing food and substance, whether it was some form of suffering. He says, all of this is worthy. It's not, we're not men most miserable. All of this is a worthy sacrifice to the one who conquered it all. And as I said in Sunday school, if the resurrection, because the resurrection is true, we know that he's subdued all things. So why does my heart fear what he has conquered? Why does my heart worry about the things he's already defeated and said, someday I will defeat myself. I, the grave can't even hold my physical body. So why am I so consumed by the cares of this life? And here in this last verse, he says, be steadfast. Don't be, don't be blown about. Be, uh, be unmovable. Abound in the work of the Lord. Don't be doing less from Jesus. Be doing more because you know that your labor's not in vain. You're not just going to the grave. You're not just going to eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You have a purpose and a life and a resurrection that's coming. And you'll stand before that second Adam who conquered the grave. This is where it's all going. So my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, abounding in your work for the Lord. Let's pray.